0: What's up, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can help this show to grow while also getting access to our exclusive Pride content, which includes shows like Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, special interviews, Lions of Liberty Roundtables, and much, much more. So check that out. Help us grow at lionsofliberty.com forward slash support.
1: Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons,
0: friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, for those of you who maybe just stumbled across this program and were wondering, what the heck is Felony Friday? What am I listening to? Well, This is a show where each and every Friday, I focus on exposing injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. And this is the Lions of Liberty podcast. So this is only one of three shows that we have here every single week. We kick off the week every Monday with a show hosted by Mark Clare. It is our flagship program, our longest running program on Lions of Liberty and Mark interviews leaders in the liberty movement and hosts roundtable discussions. On Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land, hosted by Brian McWilliams. It is a hilarious show, a fun show. Brian reviews current events. It's your weekly shot of culture, comedy, liberty, and general ridiculousness. It's a good time. And to get all three of these shows delivered to your phone, just magically, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, you can subscribe on... Apple Podcast or Stitcher or Google Play or Overcast. There's so many podcasting apps out there. Whichever one's your favorite, just subscribe, make sure you have this delivered to your phone every single time. This is the only libertarian variety show out there and one of the only variety podcasts that I've ever heard of. You know, most podcasts are just the same host, the same format every single week or, you know, every two weeks, whatever. But here, at Lines of Liberty, the only place where you get three different hosts and three very different show formats. So we do really have a, a nice wide breadth that we cover of the liberty movement and just the uh, really general political landscape as a whole. Today's episode of Felony Friday is the 119th episode. That means you'll be able to find the show notes with links and notes with everything that I'm going to talk about with my guest today at linesoflibertycom slash ff. 119. And my guest today, I'll introduce him in just a moment here. My guest's name is John Kufos. And actually, after recording this with John, I recorded this, I guess, last week. Yeah, I think last week. And then um, you'll hear during the recording, we talk about uh, potentially meeting each other at the Pennsylvania Leadership Conference, which was a, a week ago from when you're listening to this, a week uh, last Friday. So we did, and I got to meet John, and I saw his uh, his forum that he had with Brianna Walden from the Charles Koch Institute, a great discussion where they talked about what we're going to talk about today with John. So I'm not going to spoil it. John comes at criminal justice reform from the right, which I think is fantastic. I haven't interviewed a lot of people who approach criminal justice reform from the conservative side, from the Republican side. So this is, this is great. I'm really looking forward to you guys hearing from a different perspective. You know, really, in the past, I've had on a lot of people from the left, um, a lot of liberal activists, which is great, too. As a libertarian, I think it's my job to bring people from the right, conservatives, and the left together and unified for real, lasting criminal justice reform. So let's get rolling with this interview. My guest today on Felony Friday is John Kufos. John holds both a bachelor's and master's degree from John Jay College of Criminal Justice, as well as a law degree from Fordham University School of Law. He served on Governor Chris Christie's Opiate Task Force and as NJRC liaison to the New Jersey State Bar Association. John is the National Director of Reentry Initiatives for Right on Crime, In 2014, he built the New Jersey Reentry Corporation to assist Governor Christie's nationally recognized leadership and innovation to fight the opioid crisis. After designing this program, John was named the executive director and worked with Governor Christie and his administration and five former governors to implement this effective evidence-based reentry services NJRC grew from a single location startup to approximately 60 employees in nine program sites. And he strongly committed to recovery, reentry, and reintegration. John, welcome to Felony Friday.
1: Good evening. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for coming on the show. And I was chatting with you before we got started here. I'm really excited to talk to someone coming at it from the conservative side, um, the, the right side of the aisle. That's the side that I came from, uh, that I came to really having a passion for criminal justice reform. But there's not many people I meet really in this movement. There's not many activists or you know, people I really meet who really come from it from that perspective. I know people are out there and I'm trying to find more and I'm really happy you agreed to come on this show to talk with my audience today. Now, I want to start out the show before, you know, something I like to do so my audience gets to know you a little bit better, gets to know your, your passion, really what drives you, just to get some background information on yourself. So what was the driving factor in pushing you to decide to go to law school? Was there a moment or something that occurred that really, you know, made you, set you on notice that you wanted to pursue a career in law?
1: you know, I, 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 wish there was some great story, uh, about me reading, uh, books about, you know, Clarence Darrow, uh, and, and, and Atticus Finch that, that motivated me to practice law. But, um, in many ways it happened by accident. So I grew up, uh, in, in poverty, with a father who's a federal fugitive, who was a federal fugitive, my mother, a teenage mom and an addict. And, uh, I think I saw 39 states before I hit high school. I was homeschooled a lot of that time and pulled all around the country. Um, you know, my, we land when my father gets captured. We land in uh, in Ocean County, New Jersey, uh, which is in the Point Pleasant Beach area, a place called Brick, New Jersey. And that's where I went to high school. So um, I'm sort of this directionless poor kid uh, in South Jersey. And, uh, you know, I worked some odd jobs after high school pumped gas, you know, uh, was a janitor, uh, maintenance man in a hotel, you know, things like that. Um, And then when I was about 20 years old, I decided to go to college, really being pushed by a a friend's father, candidly, because I had no structure in my my life. A friend's father uh, said, John, you know, why don't you go to college? So he was a police officer in in the northern part of New Jersey. So I I enroll at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, really, because this guy— You know, motivated me to do it anyway. uh, I ended up getting a bachelor's and master's degree in under three calendar years. And I graduated, you know, very high in the class. And it was two professors at John Jay College, uh, Professor Sherman and and Markowitz. I'll never forget these men who said, well, what are you going to do after you get this master's degree? And I said, well, I really don't know. They said, well, why don't you go, why don't you take the LSAT and try to go to law school? You know, we think you have a real, um, we think you have a brain for law. So I was like, okay, fine. So I took the LSATs, I did well, uh, and I got a half, uh, half ride to Fordham Law. And from there is when I really actually just, I was like, it became real. I said, oh, wait a second. I went from a poor kid, you know, who, you know, was the barely blue collar uh, to one of the top law schools in the country now. So it was at that point, that I realized now that I was going to be a lawyer, what was I going to do? And I chose litigation because I always wanted to help, you know, the underserved populations.
0: That's an interesting story. Honestly, that's it's a common answer. I mean, there's not many lawyers who have these <laughs> epiphany moments that they decide to to go to law school. It's really just a lot of times it's something that happens, but once they get into studying law and they understand they have a skill for it, that at least from what I've found interviewing people, that's when things start to click and, and that passion starts to build. Um, I, I want to ask you, so did, did your father's criminal history, do you think that had an impact in pushing you towards uh, criminal justice reform as a, as a career path?
1: You know, I don't, it, it, I think that those two things are kind of coincidental. So, you know, I, you know, I'm blessed to work in the reentry space. And, you know, my father is not someone who would ever have benefited for a reentry program. Um, you know, he's someone who, he, he's that part of the population who, you know, wasn't going to change no matter what, um, and spent most of his life in and out of prison on the installment plan, we say in the criminal defense world, I mean, you go in for a little while, come out and go back in. Um, but I will say that, you know, I think that no matter what you well, what you're exposed to in life is going to guide what you know later in life, right? So I was a you know I was a little kid, and and the conversations you know around you know my father were about you know wiretaps, the RICO Act, and you know 848 continuing criminal enterprises. So obviously it, it factored in somewhere, but I never th- that part of the work doesn't motivate me. It's really the addi- the helping the addicted population that got me into reentry.
0: So you started out as a criminal trial attorney, right? How many years did you do that for?
1: Sure. So I graduate uh, Fordham Law. I I clerked for a judge for a year. Um, And uh, after that, I take a job in uh, about six months at a great law firm uh, down in Ocean County, just wonderful, wonderful guy down there uh, and, and a great firm. But, you know, it just wasn't for me. I wanted to try cases. And uh, at the same throughout this whole time, I'm I'm like a completely functional alcoholic. So, uh, you know, I, I, I like to say I had a, a beer muscles when I chose the next part of my career. And I decided I guess I was twenty seven or twenty eight. I was going to open up my own law firm. And I did that with a woman named Veronica Norgaard, who I clerked with. And then uh, we would go on to build a practice together and. It was folks who uh, were involved in the criminal justice system who came through my door. So that's what I became good at. I knew it always interested me, um, but I became good at that. And then I was lucky to uh, become head of the Legal Redress Committee, actually for the NAACP in Middlesex County, New Jersey, doing, uh, doing civil rights cases, uh, doing those for, the, for underprivileged folks. And I did that whole thing for about, about nine years, just under 10 years I practiced law.
0: During this time, you have your own firm, you're practicing law, a lot of your clients you said were, were, I guess I'm assuming addicts, you know, uh, people uh, struggling with addiction, um, people suffering from this opioid crisis. Did that motivate you to get involved? How did you take that next step? And how did you get involved with uh, with Governor Christie in that program?
1: Sure. So, Uh, You know, I represent like all criminal defense lawyers. I represented a lot of folks who were addicted persons, but most of my practice were, you know, were really the guys bringing the drugs in. Uh, You know, I had a lot of gang cases, a lot of murders, uh, racketeering type cases, things of that nature, big wiretap cases. Um, And I I mentioned before, I was this functional alcoholic and uh, I was really good at work and then really bad at everything else there was, which is not an uncommon addict story. Well, in 2011, I was driving drunk, as I did so many times, and only this time I hit someone and thank God I didn't kill them. And then I tried to lie my way out of it. It was the culmination of the, the mental health issues I had from the wild childhood I brought up, uh, mentioned before. And by the way, I'm not making an excuse. I'm just giving you an, an explanation of what brought me to the to where I am. Uh, of fuel fueled with alcoholism, and thankfully the person I hit lived and, and you know, went on to, to recover. But um, for that, I went to prison, and I was sentenced to six years in prison, and I did 17 months in prison before I was paroled. So uh, I, I get indicted. Um, I actually finished out my caseload. I argued. I'm the only guy, and I don't think this is an honor, but it, it's there. I, I'm the only guy, I think, in the history of the state of New Jersey to argue and win a Supreme Court case while I, and win, argue and win a Supreme Court case while I was out on $150,000 bail. And I did that case because it was a case for an indigent person who couldn't afford counsel, and I had handled their case before. And after that case was done, I, uh, I pled guilty and would go to prison. Uh, I would also start my journey to sobriety. So when I get out uh, after 17 months, I, I the parole board agrees to let me out. And but I have no home. I have nowhere to go. I have no law license, you know, lost everything. Uh, I forfeited everything with my conduct. Excuse me. I, didn't, you know, I think you lose your keys when you do when you commit crimes, as I did. You know, you you give up things and, and, and you forfeit things. And um, I had to move in with a law school rooming uh, a buddy of mine in a place called Hoboken, New Jersey. And for those uh, of, of your listeners who may not know Hoboken, New Jersey, Hoboken is not the place uh, that drunks go to get sober. It's a party town. It's a lot like Austin, Texas, places like that um, with a lot of alcohol and a lot of, of, of partying going on. Um, but I'm very blessed that my recovery was strong. And the parole board, candidly, of New Jersey did me a real solid by, uh, by agreeing to send me all the treatment I had asked for and providing me those treatment resources. So I came out uh pretty much penniless bankrupt, and uh I was lucky though I had a job now we'll get to the point of 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 reentry so I mentioned I did some work for the NAACP before that was good for my soul working for the poor the underprivileged you know those who are you know shafted by the government, things like that though that that really motivated me in life, and I couldn't do that with no law license so I read about. A former governor of New Jersey, Jim McGreevy, trying to launch a little reentry program in Jersey City. And all I wanted to do was to talk to the addicts in that program and help them in a few ways. Now, flashback now. I'm sitting in Bayside State Prison and I'm watching my cellmates and other inmates get to go out to the halfway house, right, so they can actually get a job. And then they'd be sent back within a matter of weeks Because they didn't have identification. If they did have identification, uh, they had old warrants and old tickets because they might have had a traffic violation or an old fine for $100, $50, some small amount. They never paid because they couldn't pay. That triggers a warrant and it prevents them from getting other forms of identification. Those arrest warrants send them back to prison with me. So I'm sitting there watching this go on, John, and, and I'm like, you know, this is the easiest thing in the world to fix. And I filed that in the back of my head. Flash forward, um, I started volunteering at Governor McGreevy, former Governor McGreevy's program, and I built a legal program with all my old buddies and, and some great support from New Jersey State Bar Association uh, where we would clear up drivers, they would clear up driver's licenses uh, for the for compliant clients. Well, during this time, uh, Governor McGreevy took me to see Governor Christie, and he liked the program, and they, you know, he was involved in the opioid, uh, really leading in the in the opioid fight at the time when he was governor. And he asked, uh, with his, his administration, asked that we build out a reentry program. So I built out what I thought a model would look like uh, that could address uh, specific categories: addiction treatment with mental health treatment, uh, healthcare itself, law which encompasses identification, housing, and workforce development, right? Workforce development, very important to restore the dignity of work to people. Anyway, uh, Governor Christie liked what he saw. So did the administration, and the legislature in New Jersey. And uh, they said, well, can you operationalize it? So I incorporated the New Jersey Reentry Corporation in 2014, uh, went and met with five five of the former governors or four other former governors, plus McGreevy, uh, and asked them to join our board. Former Chief Justice Porch was on our board and what we did was we started building a hub, hub and spoke navigation model of reentry. And in three years, you, you mentioned the successes we had, but the real successes were where you saw, you know, well over half the people employed and people were getting real jobs. So that is a really exciting work. Governor Christie was a huge supporter of our program. Uh, and as he continued to lead in so many ways, you know, expanding the reimbursement rates under Medicare for addiction treatment. Uh, Governor Christie closed a prison, and, made, and then reopened that prison as a treatment prison for the opi- for predominantly the opioid population. So I was happy to be able to service the population on the back end when they would come out.
0: So, just some questions about this uh, reentry program. I inter- with this show, I interview a lot of felons, a lot of people, most of them committed uh, you know, nonviolent crimes, some some violent, but across the board, I would say, yeah, I would say across the board, the biggest problem they have with reintegration is finding housing. Obviously, finding a job with that felon label, that can be very difficult as well. But for the most part, if you're willing to work, especially below your capabilities and take a, you know, just take a manual labor job, you can find something at least to work. But finding housing, finding a place to rent, a landlord to rent to you can be incredibly difficult, as, as I'm sure you're familiar with. So in what way does... Uh, your program eased this? What, 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 what way does it streamline it to make it uh, easier for felons to find housing?
1: Well, in New Jersey, uh, what was done was something that was really innovative. And, you know, I, I was a big proponent of making sure that governmental systems were used uh, and optimized and used in the way they were intended. So when you look at Uh, how housing was paid for, for people coming right out of prison, we're talking about New Jersey before I came to write on crime. Uh, You're talking about folks who are drawing from the welfare rolls, right? And uh, they're getting something called general assistance and emergency assistance. Well, uh, what happened was frequently folks wouldn't be, would be otherwise eligible for some sort of housing while they were trying to find work, but they couldn't get it because of various administrative barriers. For example, like they didn't have enough identification to prove to welfare who they were, um, or they didn't properly connect to their one-stop career center. So we worked to knock those barriers down. At the back end, uh, you know, we didn't see too many landlords in New Jersey that wouldn't rent to the population. But I think that's largely a product of, you know, the, the, note the, The notoriety of our program and and who was involved. I mean, the employment community learned very quickly, as did the community in general, that if a client came through the New Jersey Reentry Corporation, chances are they were clean, they were on the right track to doing things because we, we wouldn't just send people into situations or vouch for people that weren't ready to work, weren't ready to rent. So we didn't have a lot of those problems. What we did have was people even having enough money to secure housing in the first place.
0: Okay, what's happened now with the obviously Governor Christie is no longer the governor. What's happened with the New Jersey Reentry Corporation?
1: Well, the Reentry Corporation, you know, is 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 still uh, the leader in New Jersey. Um, the the pro bono legal program I mentioned, we we attracted seventy pro bono lawyers. That's still going on, uh, and you know, at this point, the program is is being run uh, temporarily. I think Jim McGreevy himself is in my seat. and uh, and it, you know the the fight in New Jersey doesn't continue uh, against opioids. We're one of the states that got crushed or getting crushed daily. And the new governor uh, has just dedicated a hundred million dollars, I read, to the opioid fight. So I think that that reentry will be alive and well there. so long as it's done right. And I think w- the the success of the New Jersey Reentry corporation, and the success that uh, you know we're going to be having across the country in reentry is when you have to view reentry as a public safety issue above everything else, and that's how I viewed it. I view it as a, a public safety and workforce development issue. So, but if we do reentry right, we're going to have more people working, convert tax drains into tax bases, and we're going to have safer streets, right? And that's good for everyone. So, so when you Each what I'll call barrier to reentry, whether it's an opioid problem, whether it's housing, whether it's ability to to get into job training, if you have 100 warrants that we have to clear up, each of those leads to one outcome in uh, when I'm in charge of a program, which is work. Right. And that is where work and self-sufficiency and meaningful work you hit you know, you really hit a nail on the head when you mentioned before about folks being able to find something if they're willing to work maybe below their skill level or take a manual labor job. Well, I, I wanted folks to get their last job with us. And thanks to the you know, work we did, particularly with the New Jersey State Bar Association and the lawyers clearing up licenses, our population was instantaneously eligible for building trade unions and skilled labor like that and they were eligible for a greater suite of training services because they were in all other ways eligible and compliant. So we were able to get people good paying jobs as well, which I was I am very proud of and is something I hope to to duplicate because remember being unemployed is bad but being underemployed can be just as bad in some situations.
0: For sure. Yeah, you get used to a certain level of in- income in your life and you go away to prison, you come back and you're expecting to live a certain way and it's uh It can be very frustrating. It can be just as bad as not being able to find a job if you're not able to achieve uh, what you're used to. So, uh, you're no longer with uh, the uh, NJRC. You're now with Right on Crime. How long ago did you start with them? And can you give us a brief overview of really the mission of Right on Crime?
1: Sure. Uh, I was lucky enough to join Right on Crime uh, in December of 2017. Uh, And, you know, Right on Crime is a a national leader in conservative criminal justice reform, uh, and has helped, you know, dozens of States, you know, enact meaningful criminal justice reform. Uh, most recently in Mississippi, actually, I was with the governor, uh, a few weeks ago and I'm going back next week to, to see him for a bill signing on an, an exciting bill that, uh, that covers driver's licenses and, uh, and, and parole reporting. So Right on Crime you know, has been at the forefront of criminal justice reform, particularly in Texas, where they've closed, I think, seven prisons there. Um, and they'll work on, on a number of different issues. I like the fact that they, you know, they work on victims' rights issues as well. Uh, that means a lot to me as a guy who tries to spend most of his, his free time you know, atoning and, and doing the next right thing. Uh, so that's really enticing to me. And the really exciting part about this, uh, what Right on Crime is doing, is handling the policy arm of the Safe Streets and Second Chances Project, which is uh, a partnership with, uh, with Florida State University, Koch Industries, and Right on Crime. And the goal is in four target states, Pennsylvania, Texas, Louisiana, and Florida, do research behind the wall, starting with an individualized reentry plan. So just to stick with that for one second. Sure. You know, when when you go into a prison, most of the time you don't get any kind of meaningful assessments. And if you do, those assessments aren't meant to to help you reenter society. Those assessments are, you know, are you mentally ill enough to be on a unit? Um, Do you have health issues that we need to worry about? And when you think about it like that, I liken it to if you fell right now and broke your ankle and you knew it was broken and you go to the hospital and they sit you in the ER and they say, you know what? We're not going to give you an x-ray. We're not going to set the break. You're not going to get any medicine. Uh, you're just going to hang out here. And then once it sets the wrong way, get up and walk around and maybe go run a marathon. Right. That's that is the, the that is the best way I can describe what goes on. So you need an individualized reentry plan to your needs because you need, that individualized reentry plan guard your uh, guides your discharge planning. Use a personal story again. I'm was very well known as an alcoholic and that's how I ended up in prison. Um, I asked the prison discharge social worker, you know, can you tell me where the AA meetings are in Hoboken, New Jersey? And all she had to do was sit in front of her computer that she was already in front of and Google, where are the AA meetings in (laughs) Hoboken, New Jersey? and She could have printed that list for me. Instead, she wrote the one 800 number down for AA and slid it across the table. Um, so, right, you couldn't, there's, there's virtually no programming. This is something we're seeing everywhere. So Safe Streets and Second Chances, with the research arm by Florida State University, will be, uh, the researchers will be drafting individualized reentry plans, And then following folks out, the first releases will come probably fourth quarter of 18, first quarter of 19. And the idea is to connect them to the existing reentry services in those both urban and rural communities in those four states. And what Right on Crime is doing is incredibly exciting. What we're doing is going into those states to help these reentry providers optimize what they're doing. Many of them are doing great work already, but uh, they're identifying barriers That They're asking us to help with. So they'll identify a barrier, say, to how identification can be secured to pick one out of the air. And, you know, right on crime, we'll then go and do the research behind it. We'll go to the the speaker, the governor's office, to legislators uh, and to regulatory agencies where that is appropriate and then ask them to change these things to make better systems. Uh, working on higher-level partnerships with the private sector as well to make sure the business community knows that uh, – let me go back – that we're responsive to the needs of the business community. We're blessed with uh, Johnny Taylor, the CEO of the Society of Human Resources Management, on our advisory council. Uh, so we're, we're tied into the business community to try to produce the best employee for the business community and back the services in around there.
0: So this uh, – you know, talking about Safe Streets, Second Chances – and Right on Crime, and I think the third organization you said was, uh, was Coke Industries. Is this uh, a co op between these three groups, or is, w- w- what's the affiliation?
1: Sure. So, Florida State uh, is doing the, the independent research. Right on Crime is handling the policy, uh, the policy interventions and the streamlining of those systems. And, and Coke Industries and, and uh, the, Coke, the Coke Foundation uh, is funding it. So, they're privately, it's privately funded by Coke. Uh, to do this, and it's just another part of Coke's, you know, commitment to criminal justice reform. I can tell you that when I was in New Jersey, uh, and you know, New Jersey Reentry Corporation was funded, you know, through the state. Uh, you know, Mark Holden and the and, and the folks at Coke Industries came out to talk to our business community about why uh, you know you should do things like ban the box and things of that nature. So, you know, Coke's always been a leader in this field, and uh, And this project is going is going to change the way reentry is done because we're going to be starting so much earlier in the process when any logical person would think you should start at the beginning.
0: Absolutely. Um, So this is is this entirely privately funded or is there is, is there government funding as well?
1: no government funding completely privately funded
0: that is awesome so the right from right on crime is involved from uh, the policy perspective and i'm assuming influencing legislation needs to be changed is there anything specifically let's say I, i'm i'm in pennsylvania one of the states so i'm very interested in this program just in pennsylvania for example what things need to be changed from a legislative standpoint if you know off sure. the top of your head <laughs>
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, and, and yeah, and I'll I'll be in uh, in Harrisburg this weekend. Actually, the Pennsylvania Leadership Conference. Yeah, I'll, I'll be there
0: That's... too. So, oh,
1: wonderful. Yeah, I'm well, looking okay. forward to meeting offline, you I'll, offline. I'll find out where you're going to be, so we can grab a cup of coffee for sure. Um, so, in Pennsylvania, you know, one of the one of the issues we're working on is actually streamlining uh, the, streamlining the medication assisted treatment systems. So, what you see in different states, but Pen- and in Pennsylvania in particular, is that uh, people. Uh, aren't getting the different modalities of medication-assisted treatment. Something like, say, Vivitrol, for example, right? Vivitrol is a complete opioid antagonist. It's not suboxone. It's not methadone. It's not another opioid. It's not, it's not a partial agonist. It's, it's like the one thing that can get you fully clean off of everything uh, when paired with treatment, right? And that treatment being IOP. So what you run into in some situations are uh, either payer issues or the Medicaid rates aren't where they need to be. Uh, or there's just not enough money to do it or certain things aren't being billed for. So uh, I've been lucky to have uh, high level conversations you know, with insurance executives, with uh, with treatment addiction, treatment provi- providers, identifying the specifics of those, those barriers, mapping out, say, whiteboarding the the process map. And then at that point, we can go to you know the, the governor's office and the secretary of human services and those sorts of folks. And talk about ways to fix it. Um, one of the other things you know we're talking about is what is, where are the catch points where your driver's license will be suspended? Because oftentimes it's not just don't, when you owe a fine or don't show up to court. And to the extent we can knock those catch points out, it seems that there's a lot of, of, of what we'll call cross-reporting. So. You'll have to report to your probation officer or your parole officer, but then you have all these other obligations between the One Stop Career Center, between welfare, between uh, you know your your federally your your doctor, your treatment provider. So streamlining those, we're getting it, We're getting our arms around that now. Um, one of the advantages Pennsylvania has is that it is a Medicaid expansion state, and regardless of what anyone's feeling is about Medicaid, it does provide a, a manner to pay for treatment. So, that's, what, what,
0: does that, what does that mean, a Medicaid expansion state?
1: Ah, Medicaid expansion states were when the Affordable Care Act came out a few years back. Uh, some states chose to expand Medicaid to all populations based on the federal poverty line. Some did not. And actually, it's a third hybrid. Some are doing conditional Medicaid expansion. So, for example, in Kentucky, Kentucky has expanded Medicaid to folks who meet a work requirement. But one of the possibilities of a work requirement is treatment. Um, some states are just expanded Medicaid, meaning that if you meet the po- poverty guidelines, you can participate in Medicaid. Some states, say Florida and Texas, uh, have not expanded Medicaid. So there is no payer based on poverty level. You get Medicaid you know, when you age up to it.
0: Well, that's, that's really interesting. I guess how difficult is it to achieve these uh – policy obstacles um do you think this is something that can be done realistically so you know these re-entry initiatives will be able to be rolled out you said i think the goal is by the end of you say 2018 is that correct
1: right that's when our first wave of uh of release will come out um so are we gonna have every system up and running perfectly at that point no and candidly some some states are ahead of others um you know, Pennsylvania, you know you have a, a tremendous secretary of Corrections, a gentleman named uh, Secretary Wetzel, who is ahead of the curve on corrections and on how to treat people. So the work that has to be done in Pennsylvania uh, might be different than a place that has more inmates, a uh, you know a, a different state that has more inmates and doesn't have a secretary Wetzel there who's advancing who's advancing these goals. So do I think it's realistic? Yes. and the interesting thing, by the way, John, you know when, when we have these conversations about reentry, oftentimes, you know, the the gaps in the system are just a product of bureaucracy that was never, that no one ever looked at. So, I'll tell you tell you one that you wouldn't think of, right? Let's assume you get out of prison and you have to go to your one-stop career center or your American Job Center they're called, right? That's where people in the community go. It's a state organization and funded with federal dollars. Well, It's a tremendous resource, and the whole goal is to get people training and jobs. Well, imagine you were locked up from 18 to 26, and you never registered for the draft because, well, doing your draft card, your selective service card wasn't on your mind when you were in prison. Well, when you get out, because you've never registered for selective service, now you're ineligible for the training because it's paid with federal dollars. So you have to file an appeal with the selective service system And hope that they grant it. And if they don't grant it, you have to take their rejection to the United States Department of Labor at these one-stop career centers and hope they overrule it. So that whole process can take months, right? This is one small thing that we could do behind the walls, which would increase a person's ability to access training, right? And it's really simple. It's just, have you ever registered for the draft? If the answer is no, let's contact Selective Service and get you registered or get it resolved. But the problem is, think of what happened. If you get out April 1st and you're not eligible for training until July, well, what did you do with yourself in all that time? Well, hopefully something productive, but you certainly didn't go and better yourself in, in training like we would want you to. So things like that, when you, have, when you have that conversation, and I had that conversation with some members of the, the Department of Justice this week, and they and talking about doing it in a federal prison, they, they were like, oh, well, that's pretty obvious you know let's talk about getting it done so i think that that's what you see when you when when i see when i go from state to state to state is that it's oftentimes these barriers that are holding people back are really it's 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 just a product of the bureaucracy and once you realize it's so efficient to align the system and you see the return on investment in human capital and most importantly in safer streets you see people looking at this as a public safety issue and people are really excited to make the changes
0: I think that's a really good point. Um, it, obviously, branding is is very important, and you know you can try to sell it, especially to conservatives, sell it as a way to uh, to spend less, you know, less less uh, government spending, which hopefully would lead to less taxation, which is obviously things conservatives are for. But when you sell it, you can sell it to anyone if they're Democrat, independent, libertarian, whoever. Let's make our streets safer. Um, putting people out on the street who. You know, don't have a skill, can't find a job, can't find housing. What are they going to do? They're going to probably be sucked sucked into the black market drug t- drug trade. Start working with uh, gangs, join a gang, and uh, obviously, as we know, that when uh, drugs are pushed onto the black market, that is when you get this uh, this violence and that uh, that gang related activity. So, exactly, it seems, it seems like common sense, but um, I think that's a great great way to sell to people. I'm curious with with right on crime, I know you're focused on the reentry position. What is uh what is the position if there is one? Right on crime has on drugs uh, the way that uh you know if drugs should be legalized, uh, which ones are they in favor of legalizing marijuana? Uh, what's the stance on the the war on drugs, as as we'll call it?
1: Well, you know the truth. I'm I'm embarrassed to to, to tell you that I don't know the answer to that. Um, I wouldn't be the one to to work in those departments of right on crime Mark Mark Levin and uh, Derek Cohen uh would be able to answer those questions for you. Okay. Um I stay I stay in the reentry lane and uh I'll tell you I'll tell you John building building a cutting edge reentry system particularly when you're talking about touching law, healthcare, medicine, uh addiction treatment, housing policy, workforce development policy, I could tell you I got my hands full, brother. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm sure you do. I was reading through um, the Right on Crime website and I found a really, uh, really interesting, I think very uh, productive section here. I'm um, talking about, uh, I forget what it was called exactly, but it listed out, oh yeah, it listed out the conservative principles behind it. And I think there were, you know, I don't know how many signatures, governors, politicians who have signed on to it. I noticed Jeb Bush, Mike Huckabee, Rick Perry, and some really well thought out. Um, points here, uh, just to read a couple. Uh, this is not the entire thing. I just took uh, took some snippets, but criminal justice, the criminal justice system must be transparent and include performance measures. I think that really aligns with what you're talking about with re- with reentry. Um, we have a system today that you're talking about how uh, you know it's just a bureaucratic mess. And is anyone even? like maybe there are states that are that are doing this but do you know of any states that really have good metrics in place to see how many people are coming back in how many people are being recycled through the system
1: well, I can tell you that uh, that y- you know, uh, Florida just passed a data bill that uh, once it gets operationalized, you know, assuming it gets operationalized, well, um, you know, will be a real game changer to capture data points at multi-level systems. But you know, you point out a good, you-, you bring up a really good point. You know, you know, even right down to the to the uh, definition of recidivism, all of those different things. Um, you know. It's hard to get data that matches apples to apples. So recognizing this and being a guy who spent his whole life in the private sector, um, when I was at the New Jersey Reentry Corporation, the first thing I invested in besides our employees was an incredibly sophisticated data system using the Salesforce data system. And I hired an administrator to build us a system. And for that, we could capture data points just like the private sector did in real time. Right. If I were at the reentry corporation right now, while we're on the phone, I could tell you how many single uh, mothers who were uh, Latina and had a driver's license and served between one and five years. that came through our program. So I can get I, we have the availability of those stats, you know, in, in, in a heartbeat. So the government. Has not uh, always done that, so I think though you're seeing the change, right? As the market moves, the government moves. So I, I I spend a lot of time dealing in healthcare issues as well, and I think you see as we move to you know whole person care, value based care, uh, you, know, de- you know, health informatics and things like that, it's starting to resonate with people that it makes a lot of sense to have one data-sharing system uh, running across state state governmental systems. And states. different states have tried it. Uh, None jumps out at me as a great system. I'm sure they're out there. But I'll tell you, when I was in New Jersey, uh, we didn't have much. So I knew for my program uh, I would build us one, the same one that they would use at, uh, you know, at any Fortune 500 company, and that's what I did. And, now, and by the way, it allowed us to react to problems a lot faster. So we could react to, you know, if we saw a spike, let's say, in, in addiction treatment referrals, right, we could react and make sure that we, uh, we we let our addiction treatment partners know that we needed more more seats. So really fascinating stuff when you can get into the data.
0: Absolutely. And I forget, I, I don't forget, I don't know who said this quote, but I see it, you know, bounced around everywhere. What gets measured gets managed. And it, it's funny, I mean... Obviously in business it's there's a in business and sports and everything there's a there's a data revolution we're trying to to measure everything so we can manage it better and optimize it um, it's about time we start doing this with our government you know both in the criminal justice system and really at all levels of, of government so hopefully that is starting to uh, to make its way into government. I just want to touch on one more point here from the uh, the conservative principles uh, that I read on the right on crime page. Uh, talking about um, incentives and how they affect human behavior policies for both offenders and correction systems that must align with incentives of goals for public safety, victim restitution and satisfaction that and also that these incentives are cost effective um, what what sort of incentives? Can we use um, for a reentry program? Because um, I, I think the maybe the perspective is from people who see the criminal justice system from the outside. I'm not saying this is true. Maybe in some instances it could be. Um, they look at the criminal justice system and they see people who, you know, maybe it's good for their career or, or good for their wallet to have people continuing to get locked up and recycled through the system and um, spending time in prison. I mean, obviously, if you have more people in prison, you need more more prison guards, you need more lawyers, you need more uh, people doing jobs like that. So, what sort of incentives can we put in place to reverse that?
1: Well, before I get into that, you also pay a whole lot more taxes. And, uh, you know, you're talking the prison industry is, you know, roughly what they estimated at $80 billion with a B. So, uh, I imagine that most of us would want to see. Uh, you know, some of those billions used towards education, towards infrastructure repair, right, towards workforce development, mm-hmm. uh, you know, towards, you know, any of the, you know, rebuilding the water system in certain places, which is a different form of infrastructure repair. And, and the list goes on. I don't think that anybody wants, their, wants to, when they pay their property tax bills, is thinking, you know what, I'm really glad we built these three extra prisons over here because, you know, <laughs> I like paying for it. But – when you to address your question on incentives, um, you know, different incentives can be used really basic ones. Things as basic as uh, earn time credit. Right. So another in, 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 in some states, you're able to earn time off your sentence for programming. Right. And uh, or or put differently, earn, uh, accelerate your parole eligibility date. It doesn't mean you're going to get paroled, but it means you have a chance faster. Right. And that's kind of an easy incentive to think about right because if you're in prison and you knew that you could do nothing and you're going to get out at the same time as someone who does something well you may or may not be as motivated to do anything right so there's a there's an incentive but those incentives when you talk about the key part i don't want us to lose here is tying the incentives to public safety so if you're going to accelerate someone's parole eligibility date it better be for a really good reason it better be because they're taking a focus on the victim class It better be because they're receiving meaningful, uh, you know, anger management, meaningful addiction treatment, those services that we want them to participate in for folks who are on, say, probation or parole and they're asking for early termination. You know, I had a conversation with someone today. You know, one of the key factors should be, you know, are you completely sober? And I take that from a guy who, you know, lived a whole lot of his life as an alcoholic, as an active alcoholic, excuse me. Are you completely sober? Right? Or are you on methadone? Are you on something else? Where are you in your addiction treatment progress? And if you're progressing faster than someone who than someone else, is there a reward to encourage that? Because if we encourage you to maintain that pro sober, pro social lifestyle, society in general is going to reap the benefits. Remember, you know, if if John Kufos continues to drink and drive, Right. More victim. There'll be more victims of drunk driving accidents. Right. So by by making sure John can get when the parole board makes sure John Kupos can get that treatment. Right. They're making an investment not so much in John, but in the public safety of the residents of New Jersey. And that's the way I look at it. These small incentives that you give uh, can have great return on investment. If people are connecting to the programming, they need to fix the underlying causes of their criminality.
0: Well, John, I think what, what, you got, what you're doing with, with Right on Crime, what you've done previously with New Jersey Reentry Corporation, um, I think it's f- fantastic work. And like I mentioned at the beginning, you know, I love seeing this stuff coming from people of a conservative background. So I want to give you a minute here to really plug anything else that you're working on or um, let people know where they can find the Right on Crime website, where they can learn more about you.
1: Sure. Thank you so much. Uh, And and thank you for the time. And and it's only because folks like you uh, amplify our voices in reentry that we're able to convey this message. Um, Again, as I mentioned, I'll be at the Pennsylvania Leadership Conference uh, this weekend. Uh, I'll be speaking on on the 7th in the morning with uh, Brianna Walden from the Charles Koch Institute uh, on Safe Streets and Second Chances. You can learn more about that at www.safestreetsandsecondchances.com. You can learn more about Right on Crime at www.rightoncrime.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at JGKufos, J-G-K-O-U-F-O-S, uh, at Twitter. And, you know, I look forward to receiving emails from folks, and John, I really hope you and I stay in touch and continue to, to, to work on these issues together.
0: Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on
1: the show, John. Happy to be here. Have a great night.
0: What awesome stuff that John Kufos is doing with uh, Right on Crime and that he's done that he did previously in New Jersey working with uh, Chris Christie. And I really like how uh, at Right on Crime and also the work they did in New Jersey where they couch it as a public safety issue. And it really is a public safety issue. And if you just think back to the podcast I did last week with Terrell Burden. Terrell Burden is a guy who was convicted of murder. And Terrell did show remorse for his crime. And he, he felt terrible for what he did. And he turned around and changed his life, starting while he was in prison. A lot a lot of things he did while he was in prison set him up to land on his feet once he got out. But even when he got out of prison, you know, while he was in prison, he got this welding certificate and uh, was able to weld. But once he got out, he signed up for job programs and really hit the ground running. And you have to look at it, I mean, Both violent and nonviolent offenders, we don't want people coming out of prison more violent or more angry or with less, you know, with no skills at all. In fact, negative skills because um, you're not progressing at all while you're in prison. You're even losing the ability to communicate and uh, you're not keeping up with the latest uh, cell phone developments or computer developments or all sorts of technological changes. So, that's a big thing. And that is huge in the criminal justice movement. So I have a lot of respect for what John Kofus is doing with the Safe Streets and Second Chances program, helping to get these felons, helping to, uh, so they learn the skills, so they're not held up by these, you know, little stupid uh, regulations and rules with driver's licenses. And they, you know, they're not able to even get to their job because they can't get a driver's license. So this is, This is very, very important stuff. And I look forward to hopefully, uh, possibly collaborating with John in the future. I did, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, when I was at the Pennsylvania Leadership Conference, I did talk with John and with Brianna Walden from the Charles Koch Institute um, about possibly collaborating, about helping to give a voice, give a story to some of these felons participating in the... Safe Streets and Second Chances program. So nothing, absolutely nothing is uh, concrete. This is all just uh, you know talking and maybe uh, talking about a potential partnership, which I think would be would be fantastic. So hopefully it works out. If it doesn't, you know it doesn't. But uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed today's show. And I'm just gonna say, if you guys enjoy what we do here, hopefully you do. A lot of people like it so much, they've joined the Lions of Liberty Pride, and you can join the Lions of Liberty Pride by going to com slash support for as little as $5 a month. Can You're getting the pride. You get access to our Facebook group, and you'll get all of our bonus content uh, with uh, the star-studded lineup, including Conspiracy Corner, uh, Degenerate Gamblers, and a bunch of other bonus content, bonus questions from guests. Uh, sometimes episodes are released early, things like that. Up from there, we have a $10 level where you get some some merchandise, a $15 level where you get the merchandise, plus you get access to our um, Monday through Friday uh, news link dump, a bunch of news links that Howie Snowden puts together all across the political spectrum, just a fantastic feature. And really, a lot of our newest members are joining at that $15 level, and I think they're really uh, enjoying that perk. And then, of course, $25. You get the, the news, but you also get at 25, you get more merchandise, and you get the monthly conference call with us to ask us anything. It's like a, a monthly AMA where you can just uh, ask us any questions or <laughs> rant about liberty and we'll we'll listen to you and uh, just, just have a general good time. There, it's really one of my uh, favorite parts of the month is getting to interact with our level, our Lions Guard level, that's the uh, that's that's what we call those great supporters Um, I forget who came up with that, if anyone remembers, let me know, I really do enjoy that, I know I can speak for Mark and Brian as well, they love it too so that's all I have guys, thank you so much for listening, this is John Odermatt signing off always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.